Hi, I'm Kieran Nolan and welcome to Inside Intercom. On this week's episode, I caught up with Close.com CEO Steli Efti to chat all things sales. It's a timely conversation for us, coming hot off the heels of the release of our book, Intercom on Sales, last month, and Steli's own book, The Startup Sales Playbook, this week. Steli's had a busy year and a bit since he last joined us on Inside Intercom. While not writing his sales handbook, he's overseen the change from Close.io to Close.com, and we chat about this exciting development. We also look at the evolution in hiring needs when moving from startup to scale-up, how to build a collaborative culture while retaining competition, and why price and speed are his North Star. If you enjoy my chat with Steli, be sure to check out the earlier episodes of Inside Intercom where we first heard from him. And of course, make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes by subscribing on your usual podcast channel now. Steli, we're delighted to have you back on as a guest on Inside Intercom. Most of our audience are already familiar with your work and your journey from Greece to Silicon Valley from your previous appearance on the podcast. I'd love to start off by chatting about what you've been up to since you were last on. Yeah, it seems like it's it's so hard. Anything that's like uh, longer than two weeks ago is kind of all a blur to me. Um, I have no idea what has happened, but this year has been particularly exciting for us. We were able to after just five and a half years of negotiation to purchase Close.com as our new home and domain name. Um, so we went through a rebrand from Close.io to Close.com. This year, we uh, completely revamped our pricing structure and model uh, very successfully and just introduced a startup plan to help a lot of like smaller startups to, to be able to get started with us earlier in their journey as their main CRM. And a million other things that I can't remember. The team has grown quite a lot. Uh, but it's still tiny. Uh, so we're now close to 40 people in 13 different countries. So it's been, a, it continues to be a wild ride, but lots and lots of good things. Love it. The move from close.io to close.com made a lot of press and there was a lot of chatter on Twitter about it. Can you tell me a little bit about why that was so important for you guys? Yeah. So to be, to be honest, and a lot of people have reached out to me and asked me about this. So from day one, when we launched Close in January 2013, we wanted to own close.com, right? That's the domain that we would have liked to have, but uh, it was not available. There was another startup that was trying to build something on it. And so we had to settle on close.io. The reason why we kept negotiating for that domain and, and tried to buy it, and the kind of the main reason why we wanted it, that, so there were a couple of reasons. Number one, we just felt like from a branding perspective and from kind of a brand promise perspective, it being on a .io always kind of communicated to customers that we are a new and small startup, right? That we're kind of a fresh startup that's just starting out, which was totally fine in the beginning. But by now, we've, we had become a much bigger business. We're not really a startup anymore with so many customers around the world. We're a significant business in terms of our revenue, our customer base, our employees, our impact, the scale of our operations. So... Having customers come to us today and still just by the domain name and by where our home is placed on the web, get the feel that we're kind of probably a super early stage startup that's just starting out versus a company that's been around for seven years and that, that is scalable and has a you know stable a stable partner for you. That just hurts. It doesn't hurt with the smallest of our customers, but it does hurt in terms of perceptions for some of our largest customers. They want to feel comfortable when they choose a partner that they work with as their CRM provider. So one was kind of branding perception. What does our domain name communicate to the world in terms of 
what kind of a company we are and what kind of a potential partner and vendor we could be. The other, and the, the other side of it was just a protection, right? Close is not necessarily a name you can, you know, you can trademark. So no other company in the world can, could be called that. We have competitors that even tried to launch smaller software products that were using our name, right? Just to like mess around with us in the organic rankings and use SEO to kind of take away some of our thunder. And so there was all, always the threat that a competitor could purchase close.com use all the work we've put into building that brand and take away a lot of that traffic or search or brand reputation for another product that they could host on it uh, that would compete with us. So it was both a close.com is going to be is a better place for the type of business we are today in terms of our branding and a let's protect ourselves from a very obvious thing a competitor could choose to do that would probably harm our business quite a bit. And so these two things coming together made the desire and made kind of our rationale for wanting to purchase close.com. We had the luck that I knew the owner of the domain. And so I personally kind of checked in with this person every three months for five and a half years until the timing was right for this person to wanna sell the domain and you know, because we were so persistent, we were very much top of mind and we were a, a very easy buyer to negotiate with. So within a fairly short period of time, we came up with a deal that was fantastic for us. I think still very good for the, the seller and uh, we closed the deal and it did made a lot of waves. Funny enough, it's interesting. That's something we didn't, I didn't really think about too much, but a lot of people noticed and a lot of people took it as like a sending me congratulation notices for the new funding round we haven't announced that we didn't raise. It had nothing to do with raising money, but people just assume, wow, they bought close.com, they must have, you know, must have raised 50 million. Like, let me send them a congrats email. And just in general, it seemed like a lot of people in our space took that as a signal that we're succeeding, which is kind of cool because it's true, but it's not necessarily what I thought of when I buy, bought the domain in the first place, but uh, still kind of interesting just to see how the market is interpreting this. Yeah, for sure. That's super interesting. Still producing great content, either on .io or .com. You have recently launched a new book, The Startup Sales Playbook. I think a lot of people know Steli and Close.io for the great content um, that you all produce. Tell me a little bit about the book that you have launched. What's going to make it impactful? Why should people read it? What takeaways will people get from it? Yeah, it's a good question. So the, the reason why we wanted to launch this it's because, you know, a lot has changed since we first started teaching small teams, small startups how to sell. Right? When, I, when I started creating content around this topic and when we started a, kind of teaching the world of tech in Silicon Valley, in the Bay Area, and with that kind of in the entire and broadened startup community around the world, sales was really a dirty word. It was like a word of the past. All the B2B startups and all the B2B companies wanted to build the type of product that sold itself. They wanted to create products that have some viral component to them. And so a lot of entrepreneurs in the tech and startup space and software space didn't really want to acquire any sales skills. They didn't really want to think about selling. and really didn't like salespeople and sales teams and that whole thing. It was kind of a dirty word. And we worked really hard along some other companies and people to change that mindset and to, to create a new type of, of selling. And, and we're really proud of that. Now, this has been, you know, I don't know, this is like five, six years ago that we started that journey. And a lot has changed both in startups embracing selling, but also just the technology and the tool sets and the methodologies and processes 
have changed so radically over the last couple of years that it, we felt it's time again to do a refresh on this. There are some areas where we feel like culturally there's a lot to be improved and the way that people think about selling, the way that, that, that startups are uh, hiring salespeople, there's a lot broken there um, that is more where there's a lot more education that needs to be happening in terms of how to create strong sales cultures, how to think about who is the ideal salesperson for a startup and all that good stuff. But then there was also so much new technology and so much new things in the, the sales world when it comes to utilizing automation and using all these different communication channels and kind of the, the, the changed world that we're living in today that we felt that we needed to refresh how to think about tools, how to think about automation, how to think about software when you are a small startup just beginning to sell and just beginning to acquire your first few customers, how to think about these things and how to kind of take that overwhelming amount of, of choice that is out there and order it and make sense of it and understand what you should do in step one, two, and three. So it felt like there's a lot more information out there, but that is now becoming overwhelming and there's a lot that has changed since we started teaching people and startups how to sell. So we felt like we should put together kind of an updated quote unquote, ultimate guide to give to startups to understand the messy world of selling and succeed with it in the early days in their startup. And one thing you mentioned there was moving from startup to scale up mode. Um, can you talk to me a little yeah. bit about building your sales team for that world, the scale up world? What's different to, let's say, hiring your first one, two salespeople to hiring maybe your 10th or 20th sales hire? Yeah, uh, almost everything, right? Really, yeah, it is a completely different paradigm in the sense that the first, I'll simplify this. This is going to be, you know, obviously every startup is a little bit different than those numbers are just to give you ballpark numbers, right? Or to give you some sense of what we're talking about. But the first 10 sales reps, the type of people that you're probably going to have to hire are going to have to be a lot more entrepreneurial in their mindset because, you know, in the super early days of your startup, you might still undergo through some drastic changes in what your product is, who your customer is, what the market is you're playing with, how you're acquiring these customers, what you're charging. All these things are in such flux. Like there's such drastic changes that can happen in the first six months of a startup or the first 12 months of a startup that you usually don't want to hire people that are career salespeople and that will succeed in playing a game where the rules are set in stone and where the rules are established. So in the early days, you probably will want to bring in people that are much earlier in their career, much more entrepreneurially gifted, much more excited about being part of the early days and defining the game and figuring out the process and learning these insights and helping the company determine how to change and what to change and how to morph into something that accomplishes product market fit, you're going to have to have a totally different type of person that is interested in different things than when you go from sales rep number 10 to 100, where you can go after a much broader pool of talent and you can bring in people that are much more interested in joining a company that knows what it's doing, knows what it's selling, knows who it's selling to. And now me as a professional, as a salesperson that is very good at the craft of selling can come in, learn these basics, learn the game and then play it to the best of my abilities and play it really, really well and kind of execute super well. So later in the scale up phase, you can hire, you are going after a much larger pool of talent. You hire these people that want to come in into a structure and a process that is already defined 
and they want to just execute and refine versus in the early days, you're looking for people that want to come into an undefined territory and help you define what the sales process is, help you define who the customer should be, help you define how to pitch, sell, present, negotiate and close the deal. So you're looking for very different types of people and you're offering them very different types of value props, right? In the, the first 10, I'm probably much more interested in being part of the founding team of your company, being part of the founding team of the sales team. And later on, those people are much more interested in making a career choice where they're joining a rocket ship that's going to help them propel in their career, um, join a company that's going to help them maximize their earning potentials and then be a springboard to, you know, move up in their career to the next biggest thing that they can go to. So you're looking for very different people with different backgrounds, different skill sets, also a different expectation on what they want to earn. So later on, you're probably going to have to spend a lot more money on these people than in the early days. So yeah, almost everything changes when it comes to the way you run the sales team, the type of salespeople you're looking for in the scale-up phase versus in the startup phase. Yeah, it's a super interesting topic. What are some of the more intangibles that you look for in those hires? You know, I think somebody like you is going to be able to bring people in and teach them processes, teach them skills, teach them how to execute. But yeah, what's, what are some of those more intangibles that it's harder to put your finger on that you look for? Yeah, one thing that I'm always looking for that is almost impossible to teach. At least I don't think that companies should take the responsibility and the burden to teach this to these individuals that they hire is, you know, what I call emotional stability, right? Sales, you know, is always going to be a very taxing, emotionally taxing job. There's going to be high highs and very low lows. There's really no way to hide in selling. And there's also no way to take a break or catch your breath, right? It's kind of, that's why selling oftentimes is being closely compared to athletics and sports because it's no matter if it's a team activity your individual performance is very clear it's very easy to score and no matter how great you are no matter how much you have accomplished every day the scoreboard goes back to zero right you just no matter how great your quarter was in terms of your sales numbers the quarter ends and boom there's a new quarter and guess what your numbers are zero you have to do it again and you have to do it again and that doing it again and again and again and again, no matter how great you are, that can be very emotionally very, very hard. And also sales is such a people sport. Like it is the sport of communicating with a result and a conversion at the end of the communication and relationship in mind. So you are constantly having to interact with other human beings and trying to manage their emotions and your emotions and trying to get them to make a decision which is usually very hard for humans. We don't like making decisions. And so it is just this very emotionally taxing gig. And naturally, if you're a human being, you're going to be going through highs and lows as is. Like you're going to have days where, I don't know, there's troubles in your personal life. Maybe there's trouble with your health. Maybe there's just a mood swing because of whatever, right? There's going to be things that will affect your mood and you're going to have days you don't feel good. In selling, there's no place to hide. And it doesn't, nobody cares if you had a bad day. Nobody wants to deal with that. You have to be able to get into a level of state control and emotional stability where you can put that part that aside and perform with great energy, great empathy, and great clarity when you reach out and communicate and negotiate with customers. And so that can be very, very hard. And so I always look for people that can deal with a lot of emotional pain 
and emotional turmoil, what I call people with emotional stability that can just deal with their emotions and have the discipline to push through no matter how they feel and do their job kind of with great energy and with great passion, no matter how internally they felt when that day started. And that's just so hard to teach. The people, some people just have that, that emotional resilience. Some people have learned that through a lot of hardship, but I don't know how to teach it to somebody that lacks it. So that's something I look for. And, and I will always ask people to just tell me about hard times in their life, times where they really, really struggled and how they dealt with those struggles and times of great highs, because that's also can be a pitfall. Times where everything went really, really fucking amazing. What did they do then? And I'm always looking for, you know, did they, when they, when things were going really well, did they keep going or did they ease and kind of relax a little bit and set on their success, kind of took the pedal from the metal? And when things went really, really bad, did they disconnect from the world? Did they become more removed? Did they go into depression? Did they let things slide and slip? Or did they push through it and managed to deal with it and to keep their promises and commitments? And so that's to me, if you don't have that sales, it's just going to be such a terrible job for you. And you're going to do really poorly in it. So that's kind of a really, really big thing. I'm looking for people in general that have friendly strength, which is a unique thing to look for in people, but is the type of person I want to always hire for selling. That doesn't matter if it's early or late. I'm looking for people that are friendly, which means they want to provide value. They want to create value in the world. They want to be honest. They want to be good to customers. They want to be great to their teammates. They want to be great to the world. But they also have strength. So when they do things, they do things with confidence and clarity and commitment. And they're not just friendly and then, you know, expecting the world to, you know, appreciate their friendliness and come and buy from them. But they know that they have to also display the strength of telling customers what to do, bringing up difficult conversation, negotiating from a place of confidence and clarity and telling the, like the best model for this is a great doctor, somebody that wants to make you healthy and see you healthy, but it is not wishy-washy about how they go about it. They know they're the expert. They know they have the experience, and when you come to them, first they're gonna spend a good amount of time trying to understand your symptoms, your problem, your disease, your situation holistically, but once they have figured it out and they have a diagnosis, they're not asking, they're telling you what to do. They know how to make you feel good again. And that's the type of salesperson I'm looking for, somebody that can be both very, very friendly but isn't weak, somebody that's very, very strong but isn't hostile, isn't here to take money away from people, kill the competition, selfish ego, somebody that can figure out this rare balance between being friendly and being strong, having an ego, but also being empathetic uh, and having a good heart. And if you can find that rare combination, emotional stability and somebody that is friendly and strong, everything else is easy. Teaching them your technology, your product, the process, teaching them about the customer, all that, that's easy. That's not that difficult to do. But if you hire somebody that is friendly and weak or hostile and strong, if you hire somebody that's emotionally not stable and committed and, and disciplined, you can teach them all the, you can give them all the sales books in the world. You can teach them all the basics. Their performance is still going to go up and down, left and right. And it's going to be all over the place. And it's going to be very hard for you to figure out what to do with it. Yeah, I think you're right. There's really no place to hide. And, I, you know, when confidence is low and you're not you're not sure of what you're doing or what you're saying, that comes through with the customer. And that's when a deal really goes, starts to go wrong. 
Steli, what are some of the things that you do in your own professional life when you maybe have had a bad day and you have a really important customer call coming up? How do you get yourself into the right mindset to go in and really smash that call? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. You know, the, I think for the first 10 years of me being an entrepreneur and selling most of the time, I was looking for an answer to this because I am a burdened with being not the greatest morning person that has ever lived. Like I'm a very kind of moody person in the morning. <laughs> and that that is a real problem if you're in sales, if, if you have to sell people, because I would let that mood sometimes take over my day, right? And kind of control me and influence what I was doing and how I was doing things. And I was always looking for an answer to this. I was like reading all the self-help book, all the psychology books I could get my hands on. I was trying to hack my brain so I I wouldn't feel this way anymore. Like, how can I make it so I don't feel depressed? I don't feel tired. I don't feel demotivated. I don't feel afraid. I don't feel excited. How can I make myself get rid of these subhuman emotions, right, and become the superhuman that's always motivated, always pumped, always confident? And I failed at that quest. I never figured it out until I figured out something that was much simpler to do, just much harder, much more inconvenient, which is that I learned that the hack is not not to feel these, these emotions. The hack is to learn how to act despite feeling those emotions, right? So learning how to get on a call and be awesome on the call while feeling depressed, that's the game. Not not feeling depressed. Sometimes you could just can't avoid it. Of course, there's many things you could do. You could exercise, sleep well, meditate, have a hobby, have loving relationship. There's a lot of things we could do to influence our mood and our states and, and create better habits and a better life. And I'm not saying these things don't exist. But if you do all these things perfectly, you're probably going to still have days where you feel shitty, where things happen that make you feel really, really bad. Welcome. You're a human being, right? It, it took me a long time to accept that fact. But at least for me, I was not able to transcend human emotions, negative human emotions, no matter how many great things I've implemented into my life. So what I've learned is the discipline and the, I think it's more of an acceptance, accepting my state and going well, but I don't need to feel like doing something to do it well. And once I've accepted that fact, I was able to not be stopped and held back by my moods and emotions and states of minds but I've been able to be propelled forward because one thing I'll tell you, when I don't feel like doing something and I do it anyways, I always feel great because I'm proud of myself, right? Because I know I just did something difficult and that just makes you feel a bit more fulfilled inside. And it's a great example. I love going to the gym, although 80% of the time before I go to the gym, I don't feel at all like going to the gym, not at all. But today, it, there used to be a time where when I didn't feel like going to the gym, that was a real stakeholder at the table. I was like, I don't feel like going. Well, should I go then? I don't know. Uh, maybe I'm overworked. Maybe I will get injured. Maybe I should just take a break. Maybe, you know, I should, like I would make this a real thing just because I didn't feel like it. It was like a real consideration. Well, I don't feel like it. Well, then let's have a meeting and let's figure out in my mind if I should do it or not. Now, when I go, huh, I don't feel like it. I go, well, I don't feel like it almost ever. It doesn't matter. Like I know at the end, when I get out of the gym, I will feel amazing. It doesn't matter how I feel right now. It doesn't matter. Like, this plays no part in the decision-making, how I feel before going to the gym. I'm going. 
right? And so that has translated to many other things that I'm doing today. Oh, I don't feel like having this customer call. Who cares? I don't need to feel like having it. I just need to have it, right? Like my feelings really don't matter here. Just go ahead and do it anyways. And once I really learned to do things despite not feeling like them, which sounds weird, but it's like a, a childish thing that I didn't learn. Like I, I always, when I didn't feel like doing something, that always played a factor and sometimes was the determining factor if I wouldn't do them. And today I've learned to do things no matter how I feel about them. And I've uncovered that that really, that's it. That's the magical, the, the silver bullet for me that has helped me to be a lot more disciplined and to, in control of my emotions. Because when I don't feel like doing something and I do it anyways, I instantly feel better. I just feel better about myself. I feel better about life. I feel better about everything. I'm a little bit proud of myself. See, I really, really didn't want to do it. I just went ahead and did it anyways. I can depend on me. My word matters. I keep my word to myself. I keep my word to others. And so I will succeed and uh, I will do well and deserve it. And so I feel good about myself. And then that changes my mood and it turns a bad moment into a good one. And then that bad moment into a good and sometimes great day. Awesome. Some great tips in there. One thing that we've started to do recently, and it's along the same theme, is displaying some of the leaderboards um, around the sales floor on screens. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah. you know, real-time deal win alerts, really highlighting those top performers. Oftentimes, you know, sales teams shy away from this. I know you've written a blog post about it recently. Why do you think this is such an important thing for not just a sales team, but for a company to embrace? Yeah, and this is something we had, like, we had to have debates internally for a while because the way we did activity reporting in our own CRM in, in close didn't have a leaderboard before. And there were lots of pros and cons to all sides. But eventually, like we we truly, you know, looked at the data and we looked at our own convictions and decided, you know what, salespeople, you know, people that are truly great at selling, they are there's certain things all of them have in common. If there's just one thing I could point as in common with all of them, the nice ones and the, the not so nice ones and the, you know, the experienced one as well as the non-experienced one. The one common thread amongst all salespeople that perform really, really well is that they are competitive. It's just part of, it's the same thing in athletics. Have you ever seen somebody that's incredible in a sport and that is not competitive? Right? No, by definition, it's a competition. If you don't like competition, you wouldn't want to excel in athletics or in the sport, right? In most sports. So salespeople are the type of human that likes to compare themselves with others to know if they're progressing and that wants to be at the very top. That's what drives them. That's what gives them passion. That's what gives them energy. They want to be compared with others because they want to win. Like they love winning. And even if it crushes them to lose, that losing is pushing them to get better, right? They want to know where they rank. They don't just want to play, you know, the game all day long and nobody's counting. And so no matter how many goals you score at the end, it's zero, zero, and everybody has won and everybody gets a tro trophy. You're not going to get salespeople to want to play that game. They want to perform. And the only reason they want to perform is to know that they're growing, they know that they're succeeding, and so they need to keep score. So I think a lot of startups especially, like startups, most startups really try to build healthy cultures, meaning cultures of people that like to work with each other, cultures of people that like to collaborate with each other, cultures 
where we care about our customer, where we care about the world, where we care about creating value and really doing things the right way. Most startups are not trying to just create cultures of optimizing and maximizing how much money we all make, right? That's not the number one thing everybody's writing about or thinking about that's entrepreneurially involved in startups, at least not in my experience of being part of this community for the past 20 years or so. So I think one mistake that startups can make is that they can think of competition as a purely bad thing internally as well. They can say, well, we don't want our employees to be in competition with each other. That will surely create a toxic culture and toxic cultures will translate into a, a, you know, uh, lots of fights and politics and ultimately our demise, right? So we wanna build a collaborative sales culture. We wanna build a sales culture where salespeople don't care about being better than each other or being at the top of a ranking board. So we're not gonna rank them. And what I'm telling startups is that if you do that, you will never retain the greatest salespeople. They will leave you and you will always, always only retain and attract the mediocre to bad salespeople. So you wanna create a really, really poor sales team that's gonna create a culture of losing or struggling. And I don't believe that, think about like great sports franchises, right? Uh, even a great sports team. Now the team needs to collaborate together to win, right? The team might have a real vested interest that every player plays really well, but there's still immense competition within the team as well, right? There's competition to who's gonna get the position, right? Maybe there's like two or three players in the overall roster that could play that position. So somebody's gonna need to be number one and there's gonna be internal competition for that. There's gonna be internal competition even within the, the starting team on who's the star of the team or who is really the captain or who's really influencing certain things. There's gonna be competition because it's a competitive endeavor. And if you allow for that competition, but you can create still a, a culture of we are a team and there, you know, and we're gonna wanna every single one of us to be amazing, even if you wanna be the most amazing of all, you're still gonna win if other people do well here, then you can create incredibly strong culture where the best salespeople in the world will wanna come and work for you, and the ones that are really crushing it will wanna stay with your company. If you don't care about competition, it means no matter how amazing I perform, it's my all my efforts are always gonna be divided up by everybody else's effort. Now I see that a lot of people in this team are not creating the same value and outcome that I do for the business, but I'm not rewarded at all. That will ultimately lead to me wanna leave and join a company and a team where my efforts and my performance is rewarded appropriately. And so, you need to figure out that balance. And I think that a lot of startups made the mistake that they're overcorrecting. They've seen Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, or they've seen <laughs> The Wolf of Wall Street, and they're like, oh my God, competition is bad. We don't want elbows in our offices. So we need to make it so you know all salespeople always feel good and there's no competition. And what they misunderstand is that they're now creating this culture where the wrong people want to come and work, people that don't want to be measured, people that don't want to uh, be held accountable for their performance. And now all of a sudden you, you're in a world of trouble and a world of pain as a, as a startup company. So a leaderboard is such a great kind of manifestation of this because it shows everybody in this team numerically based on what the KPIs that we're measuring or that we decided that we value where our performance is ranking today. And this is completely bureaucratic. Like this is completely depending on my performance. Today I might be the very last on the leaderboard, but there's nothing that stops me from becoming the very best, right? It's just a question of my performance. So for the right type of people, this is gonna be very motivational. And for the wrong kind of people, this is gonna be very deflating. 
But people that are always at the bottom of the leaderboard and can't get up, you want to know about that. You want to show it to the world, to the team, and to them, and to yourself, because that points to a really fundamental issue. They're not succeeding. This is a problem. They're not learning. They're not growing. They're not generating money and profits for the business. They are either not getting the kind of help they need to become really great at this, or they're not in the right business, in the right team, in the right position. So every day that you're keeping them around, you're wasting their potential. They should be somewhere else doing something totally different. So the teams that shy away from a leaderboard are the teams that don't want to face these realities from, I think, wrong and false sense of not wanting to have a toxic, highly political, highly negative culture. And I don't think it's that black and white. I think you can find a golden middle, and that's what we're aiming for. It's been awesome for the energy on our floor, that's for sure. Okay, so before we start wrapping up, one question that I love to ask folks like you, you know, a lot of people look to you for inspiration and for guidance when they're starting to set up a sales team or even setting up a company. But who's the business leader that impresses you or inspires you the most and why? The business leader? For me, for me, it's Jeff Bezos, right? And the reason for that, to me, again, maybe goes back to consistency. Like if you think about, modern tech icons and take tycoons. Amazon is really the only company that started the, kind of the birth, the first bubble in 2000 of the, the web. Uh, you know, it was the, the first big three, Yahoo, eBay, and Amazon. And Yahoo and eBay don't, uh, don't really matter as much anymore in today's world. But Amazon is very much at the forefront with the newest version of companies and has reinvented and expanded its vision so many different times. Jeff Bezos, both as a founder, as a CEO of a technology company, has just been, to me, insanely consistent. And the way that Amazon had set their gold star and north star as we're not going to be thinking about what is constantly changing. We're going to focus on what will never change. And what will never change is that customers will always want the same product for a little lower of a price. They will always want it a little faster. And so we'll take price and speed as our North Star. And all innovation, all technology, everything we do as a company needs to aid that purpose. I think it was so brilliant uh, that, that I really admired him as a founder and CEO and executive. And being able to be to have that level of longevity in an industry that's so fastly changing. Yeah, that's definitely the person I've been most impressed by as a, as a leader in the tech space. Nice. I love seeing those early videos and articles of Jeff Bezos in the early days of Amazon. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome. Yeah. All right. Lastly, then, Steli, outside of the book, which uh, you've just launched, where can people keep up with your work? Yeah, so they can always get, get in touch with me personally. Uh, you can send me an email, steli at close.com, if you want to have the book for free. And all the other books that, that I've put together, we have a little library of uh, 11 books. You can send me an email, steli at close.com, just say bundle, and I'll send you a beautiful link for free to get all our material there. You know, you can find me at steli on Twitter. You, If you're interested, if you're a big podcast listener and you, you enjoy podcasts, you can go to thestartupchat.com, thestartupchat.com. I have a bi-weekly podcast with my good friend Heaton Shah, who's another legend in the SaaS and startup space. Uh, we do a podcast together that people might enjoy. And then if you go to uh, close.com, there's a blog where we publish a ton of content around sales and startup sales that people might enjoy and find useful. Awesome. As a regular listener to that podcast, I can't recommend it enough. Steli, it's always great to talk to you. Hopefully we'll have you back in the coming months on our podcast again. But for now, thanks a million. Thank you so much. Always an honor and pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more interviews, go to intercom.com slash blog 
or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. This is Inside Intercom.